You're listening to the Sustainable and Resilient Cities podcast at the University of Liverpool. My name is Abby O'Connor. I'm a PhD student in the sociology department and I'll be hosting this series. Welcome to today's episode. We're joined by Ollie Kennedy, who is a PhD student in the management school, and he's going to be discussing his research into modern slavery, looking to highlight the need for both the public and private sector to be attentive to the risks and consequences of modern slavery as the Liverpool city region attempts to build back better. Thanks for joining us, Ollie. Um, could you talk to us a bit about your work and give us a bit of an overview of it, please? I certainly can. So I'm lucky enough to be part of a a five-year sort of research partnership actually with the UK Home Office and the UK Crown Commercial Service which is the the CCS the commercial arm of the government really massive spend in the UK and therefore obviously big public purse big leverage to actually be looking at what we can do what has been done how we could redesign the future with regard to trying to tackle modern slavery in B2B supply chains, really. So within that, there's myself, there's uh, my supervisors, there's a few other students. And yeah, as I mentioned, it is a it is a long, sort of rich, in-depth five-year program of which I'm just a, I'm just a small part of it, really. It does tackle modern slavery, but we're also, I'm not specifically, but as part of the programme, we're also looking at social value and the social value legislation as well, how we can work uh, the pound more, whether that's the local economy or the uh, the national economy or whatever you define as local. So yeah, so there's a modern slavery angle and the, the, the social value angle as well. I think I'm going to jump in on, I think, what you're about to ask, but... It's because it's you, you, you mentioned, especially about the, the economic plan in, in the Liverpool city region. Yeah. So one of the side projects that I've kind of, um, we've, we've undertaken earlier this year is actually to look at modern slavery in a regional manner rather than a, a sector specific approach. So what are the, a lot of the literature and the research has done previously is they've gone okay there's a problem in agriculture let's look at agriculture there's a problem in manufacturing fashion you know we're looking in a very sort of vertical linear way so what we did with thanks to the Hesseltown Institute and Research England and with the Liverpool Combined Authority is we sat back and we thought I wonder if we can look at it differently and I wonder if there is a regional approach to modern slavery if there is a way that a regional policy can support the the national agenda. When we refer to the national agenda, it sort of coalesces around the Modern Slavery Act of of 2015, which is when I suppose the UK started to ramp up um, their, their efforts. So that's what we've been doing recently in the region. And I suppose be interesting just to to disseminate some of the initial findings at the moment what we found is that well i suppose the the rhetoric i'm using around it at the moment is if you ask 50 people what modern slavery is you get 52 different answers obviously that's 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 a nice story to tell but what does it mean in reality in reality it does mean that there's no shared understanding of what modern slavery is there's no collective um definition so to speak so 
we have some people who are including human trafficking and the, no, none of these are right or wrong by the way they're just all different you have some people including precarious labor i.e the gig economy exploitative practices in the likes of amazon um and then you have some people as well who are taking a a really philosophical view of well we're all slaves we're all slaves to the man we're all slaves to the machine i'm a slave to my phone i'm a slave to my kids so that that's something that's really interesting come out of it and i think what it has highlighted is the level of professional awareness with regard to the issue a lot of people we spoke to they all know about car washes they all know about nail bars but kind of that's where it stops now you dig down into that a little bit more and you realize that it's popular media newspapers panorama those kind of tv shows social media as well this is where all the information is coming from and it's you know it's in it's in the what you might call the common sphere the in people's personal lives and you know i suppose we should be thankful that that's actually crossing the border or the boundary of work and is being thought about in the professional lives but what it also shows is that there's a language of corporate modern slavery that is missing and so there's definitely there's definitely opportunity to increase the level of training regionally across all different types of sectors so I think um, I think a really interesting point just to touch on before we go to talk about um, Liverpool City Region's specific response to the yeah. pandemic. When you talk about how people define uh, modern slavery, and there's obviously huge difficulties around the fact that it's defined differently. You say that organisations are, are aware of the issues, and I think you know it, it would be quite difficult to find companies that would not talk about the how problematic it was, right? Yeah. But is there an issue? that you've found through your research that a lot of companies are happy to talk about it and acknowledge that it's problematic, but have this idea that it, it just doesn't happen in their backyard. Well, yeah, yeah, you're right. So there's what, what I suppose the academic angle, whether it's right for this audience or not, the academic angle that we're looking at is part of institutional theory. So we're, we're, we're applying a, the lens of isomorphism to, to the, to the research. So, we know that there are three reasons why organizations may act and you know mirror each other and, and become similar so legislative isomorphism um, is triggered by the modern slavery act the legislation we now have to write statements we have to comply then there's uh, mimetic um, which is all about what your competitors doing what the market's doing and whether you copy it or not and how quickly you move along that sort of diffusion of innovation you might say and then the final one, which is normative isomorphism, which is bound within this idea of a moral imperative, i.e. we ought to be doing something about this. That's where we've kind of honed in. That's where we're focusing because the narrative that is coming out of this regional research that we've done is that everyone is saying, oh, modern slavery is terrible. It's a really, really bad thing. We need to do something about it, but then they're very reluctant to change anything themselves. So it's almost like the tragedy of the commons, right? Everyone expects everyone else to deal with it. So actually nobody does it. People or sorry, organizations like the idea of caring about modern slavery. Yeah. Um, but, but they're reluctant to do anything because they don't want to do anything more than what they're already doing or what they've already done so the, the you're right you're right abby there's 
there's definitely a um a story here of people are totally against modern slavery but they don't think that it applies to them and in what, what the lot of the conversations that we had everyone's looking for reassurance that what they're doing is right and in fact actually more than this a different point everyone's talking about compliance and this is where i have problems with the modern slavery act organizations are looking inwardly towards themselves at whether they are compliant in order to avoid fines that haven't been forthcoming at all in the modern slavery act they 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 want to know that they are compliant with the uh, with the legislation to avoid reputational damage so it's all the risks of modern slavery have all been externalized and everyone's looking in going are we okay are we okay are you are, chief are you all right yeah yeah we're okay okay we're fine whereas actually what we need to do is stop looking at compliance stop looking at legislation almost forget about the modern slavery act and and i know that's quite um might come under fire for that but we need to start treating it as a human issue and not a risk that can or should be externalized we have to somehow find a way to bridge that gap to to look down our supply well up our supply chains most probably into tier two three four five etc and actually see the effect that these type of enduring practices have on people and this is where I, 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 the, the, a, a paper came out recently by Andy Crane, um, who's, uh, I believe, he used to be at York, I believe he's down at Bath, but I'm willing to be corrected on that, and a few of his colleagues. And it was about whether modern slavery was an academic field, right. or like a topic of interest that should be studied. And it's a really interesting paper. I don't agree with it all. But for me, this is where my problem with academia comes. I don't even think we should be having that conversation of whether it's an academic field or not. I understand the benefits of it, but I don't think it matters because actually this is potentially a life and death situation for yeah. some people. You know what I mean? And we can sit here and we go, oh yeah, really interesting. Why don't we put a theoretical lens on that over here? Or we got our sample right. And I understand that. I understand that's a social science behind it. And yet I get it. But still for me, this is really, a, it's almost a humanitarian issue very much so so yeah and I, I think i think we see that more during like for example during covid and during the pandemic right because it yeah. genuinely is a life and death situation i think people have come to understand much more about precarious labor in these last few months yeah um, than what they have done in the last few years because actually it's not it's it's not a distant problem it's not something that as you say happens over there it you're seeing it happen into I'd say probably most people um, in England know someone that have been furloughed or have been made redundant or haven't had financial yeah. support from their employer who are just ready to drop them. And of course, there's huge differences, as we've said, between precarious labour and, and modern slavery in terms of definitions. But the impacts, the effects are the same in terms of labour being exploited by corporations, big or small. Yeah, and... There's a bit of a, there's a bit of a tension here as well, a bit of a contradiction, which I think it's important to highlight. I, I mean, it has legal and and um, advocacy and support and political consequences. What I'm about to say, but you know, if for whatever reason we actually want to say precarious labour is modern slavery, if that is valuable for a certain person to receive the support that they need or the backing that they need, 
I don't have a problem with that mm. at all. But but then on, on, on the other hand, if you dilute the meaning of modern slavery, you're potentially, you know, you're potentially taking the support from someone who really needs it onto someone who could be supported in a different way. I think the 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 issue that we found is with with the the no shared definition is that we all think we're talking about the same thing, yeah. But we're actually not. We're all talking about different things. And if that's happening within a region, imagine inter regionally, um, internationally, globally. I mean, we we've known this from the literature for a while. So what is slavery in another country might not be classed as slavery over here. Or, or or vice versa. I think one of the things that we found and is coming out in recent research as well is that it happens in the UK. The NRM statistics, I think, and I'm again, <laughs> I might be lying a lot in this, so, but I'm willing to be corrected. I believe that, so the national referral mechanism is what victims of modern slavery can go into in the UK if, if they're referred into it by, a, by a, a local competent authority. And I think the highest number of people referred into the NRM are British. British. Now, we, we're like, we might think it's someone from Asia or Africa or, or South America, but actually it's British people in the UK. Not that the UK is more important, but in the UK it's British people who are mostly going into the nrm so we need to move away from this oh it doesn't affect us well it does affect you because you're just as vulnerable as as the next person and and whether they are british or non-british we're all just as vulnerable especially as you say with covid nine with covid 19 i mean people who've been made redundant people who've been furloughed this idea of non-key workers yeah um if you're desperate to keep a roof over your head desperate to feed your family and someone comes along cash in hand don't worry about it. We'll sort you out. We'll even we'll even get you to the to your new place of work, maybe in a different city. And you're desperate. How vulnerable are you going to be? Yeah, you know. And I think there is also something to be said about the fact that, and I think this links to you know the question of should it be a field in academia? Um, yeah. And and whether that question should be asked. I think that you know as we've all seen more recently, um, and people are talking about it in reference to the Black Lives Matter movement, that silence is, is violence, and that's what people are saying, and I think it's, yeah. it's true in that you're either, you know, if you're vulnerable to these positions, or if, you know, if precarious work or exploitation is going to affect you, then obviously you feel the impact of it personally, but I think a lot of people, especially pre-COVID, were very happy to act like it didn't affect them and move on from it, but that's being complicit in it. And I think we need yeah. to actually start having these conversations, especially in this country, as you say, because it is a huge issue here and it's incredibly easy to brush over it. Um, it is, and, yeah. and the ramifications of that are huge. Yeah. So in terms of the Liverpool City region, um, it's been said that 8.8 .8 billion um, pounds has been promised uh, to help uh, respond to COVID. Can you talk to us a bit about that and the impacts that that's going to have on the city region and jobs in it? Yeah. So. I think the Metro Mayor a few months ago, and it was kind of as we were finishing up our research, you know, the preliminary findings, starting to speak to people. Yeah. Steve Rotherham announced that he'd put forward an 8.8 .8 billion pound economic recovery plan for the Liverpool City region. Now, I think it consists of 1.4 billion from central government, but the rolling on effects and the additional investments, I think it's 8.8 .8 billion altogether. It will create, I think, 
There's about 120,000 jobs. So first of all, that's amazing. You know, the, the, the nouveau, the newly furloughed, those being made redundant, those struggling for work, you know, those, those job opportunities are absolutely what we need. So first thing, a caveat to what I'm about to say <laughs> is that's amazing. It's really good. And it's absolutely something that we need and it's a step in the right direction. However, as part of those 120,000 jobs, I believe 28,000 of them are going to be in construction. Now, what we do know about construction is there is a danger zone in the subcontracting, in yeah. the transient labor of get on site for a day, sort the job, back off site, you know, and it, and it almost rolls and rolls around like that on a site. So we know that precarious labor or and, and or modern slavery is an issue in construction. So the Liverpool city region has a choice now. They can engage with the research that we've done. They can engage with the literature and we can start crafting what a new business or operating model can be with construction. Otherwise, and I'm going to say this as frank as a, in, a, in a very frank manner, we as a region are complicit yeah. in modern slavery. And, that, and that's the be all and end all of it because, you know, a, a, a few of our, a few of our colleagues in, in the, in the university they're doing some amazing work about the historical roots of slavery and you know what one of the university halls is is being renamed isn't it yeah um, and we're looking at looking at the streets to be renamed so there's all this fantastic work going on and that's built on on sort of the world view of looking back in time and going the city we live in was built on the profits of slavery and we're not happy with it and we now want to almost in a form of um, reparations we want to do something about it but at the same time we're not talking about the potential to continue building the city on slavery okay it's not historical slavery yes it's modern slavery it's not the transatlantic slave trade it's you know it's british people people from eastern europe well essentially more globalized all over the world so i think we almost need to have that same rigor and that same pressure and the same frustration of going we 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 never wanted our city built on slavery and we don't want it built on slavery now yeah so there's a i think we're at we're at a bit of a um uh, a fork in the road here um and so myself and uh, a few of my supervisors and colleagues we are hopefully going to be working closer with the uh, in the city region to actually come up with some kind of charter or policy or proposal i don't know what it is yet but yeah if we don't address it now with all these construction jobs coming in we are complicit it comes back to that william wilberforce quote i'm going to paraphrase it and it's something like i should know this but something like now that you've seen you can't say that you don't know yeah so we know that slavery happens here and we know it happens in the city region a lot of people don't know what it looks like none of us know how to deal with it so are we just going to let that slide and are we going to put 28,000 construction jobs out there or are we actually going to do something about it? So that's my off the soapbox now. <laughs> okay, so I'm probably going to ask you a question that you won't thank me for. But in terms of looking forwards then and highlighting that we don't want to go back to what people are calling the old normal before COVID and we want to look at, you know, building, if building back better in inverted commas is what we want to do, then we actually need to look at what better is. Mm -hmm. and how we define that and think carefully about it and of course yeah. 
timing is really crucial um, in terms of responding quickly and getting together funding uh, yeah. for various organizations. But at the same time, I think there is a danger of rushing into things and just continuing to reproduce the completely unfair systems that, um, that we had before COVID and during it, right? And I understand yeah, yeah. that we're not going to completely change the system that we live in overnight. But in your opinion, what can be done in terms of policy responses or the city region, whether that's training or governance structures, just as a way to step forward to, as you say, make sure that the jobs that are coming up aren't embedding these issues further into the region? Yeah, so just backtrack on that a sec. Again, strong opinions. This, this whole idea of build back better. I, I like the intention, <laughs> but... <laughs> but I don't actually know what it means. It's almost like someone up top has gone, come on lads, it's uh, COVID's happened, it's time to build back better. And everyone else has gone, oh yeah, let's build back better. Come on lads, we're building back better. But I don't think anyone's actually stopped and gone, well, what, what, as you say, what does better mean? Better for who? Yeah. Better where? Better better what? And this, and I suppose the operative word of building, this idea of, you know, so, something new that is raised out, out, out of nothing. I have a bit of an issue with that as well. I have an issue with many things today. But <laughs> what, what I think what we are going to find with the new way of working is that there's going to be a lot of empty space in the, in the city region. And so instead of sort of putting all our efforts out about building a new, I think it's repurposing the old as well. So... I mean, the amount of office space that is most likely going to be left over, why can't we do something with that, which would be much cheaper yeah. than actually going to raise new buildings and construction projects and things like that. And so this, this, whole, this whole idea of better, and I'm sure there's been some thought go into it, but and it, I suppose it's, it comes back to a theory of communication. If you don't communicate out what that better means, yeah. then it doesn't actually mean anything to, to, the, to the wider world. Now, it, yeah, you did put me on the spot. In, t- in terms of, Ollie, what's the answer? No, in, t- in terms of what we could do. Well, I, so so the, the future of work, really, the future of jobs, uh, that, I suppose that's what I'm hearing there. The, your, your question is centred around, I'll try and give an intelligible answer. I've been reading a lot of Hannah Arendt recently, who is a, a German philosopher. She was Jewish, but she was in love with a Nazi. So really, really interesting person. In her work on the human condition, she defined the activities of life into three distinct categories. Now, they, they, are, they are a bit too labelled, if that's even a word, and I believe now in modern times we cross over all three. But the point is, at the very lower end, she described what would be the labour of life. So that's your cyclical biology, that's your sleeping, your eating, you know, but then, but then within that, I think there's almost certain jobs where fit into this labor category as well. You go to work, you, you, you work at a machine or doing repetitive jobs. You come home, you sleep, you eat, you go to work and it's a repeatable process above that. Or I suppose on, on at the side of that, she describes work uh, and, and that's another category which is the idea of creating something of permanence that outlives you. So that could be table, chair, car, it could be a healthcare institution. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very broad. But then at the other end of that, 
Um, so you have labor, work, and then on the other side of that, sorry, she has this thing called action, which is, which is where people move in the political space to air their views. They talk, they discourse with each other. And that's where essentially that was born out of or is born into politics, crafting the future for each other and actually engaging in, in, in the common world. Now, I think what we have, and whether it's the you know neoliberal capitalist structures or, or whatever, that's a conversation for another time, but I think we have too many jobs that are stuck in this bottom, I'm going to say bottom labor category, where we are almost machines. So we wake up, we go to work, we do what we're told, we come home and, you know, we are swapping our, our time, which actually when we say time, we're swapping portions of our life for money, but actually the, the value of their work far, far exceeds what we receive in wages. But unfortunately, all that value is going to shareholders or, or, you know, um, could be national, international, it's all going to the man. So that was that was the background for it. So the answer to the question, I think we need to rethink how we engage with our careers, with our vocations, and and what the and it's because it's been around for a while, right? We're all going to be replaced by um, automation, by AI. But what we can't be replaced by is as emotional, feeling, empathetic humans. Yeah. We that that will I doubt in our lifetime will never be replaced in that sense. So I think we really need to engage in people-focused or people-centered jobs and move away from this idea of man as a resource. And this comes back to the whole modern slavery debate because people are being treated as resources. And I suppose it comes back to why organizations find it easy to externalize them as a risk. So... Not only, not only am I, is my manifesto, we need to humanize modern slavery. We also need to humanize work as well. And we need to humanize um, jobs of the future. But then in, interestingly, what has happened as part of this pandemic, the, word, the phrase key work has been bounded, around, bounded about a lot, right? Now, you're looking healthcare, police, fire services, uh, mental health, public sector, which is great. And they've shown that they really are the fabric of our, of our society. But on the other side of the fence, you have people who've been labeled non-key workers. Yeah. So, I don't know, bankers, maybe. I'm just, I'm just throwing things out here. Bankers, maintenance people on, on private buildings. Um, the list goes on. But I, I really feel for those people who have been furloughed or made redundant as a result of COVID especially those who feel as if they've been non-key workers and therefore potentially following a non-key career, because I think that can really have some really damaging effects on people, you know, and, and it comes from my dad, really. So my dad's been working as 40 years as, um, as an electrician and a maintenance fella, and his organization turned around and said, you're a non-key worker, you can go on furlough. And it really affected my dad because it's like, you're not just telling him he's a non-key worker. You're telling him that his role isn't valuable. Yeah. Well, if it's not, if it's not valuable in the midst of a pandemic, what is it? Where is the value of it? And then you start to unpick that and, and more and more and more. And he, and he has, and it's almost like, well, the only reason he exists in work is to make money for someone else. Yeah. So 
I've, and you know, and then there's going to be a knock-on effect in the, not just in Liverpool but in other regions as well. You have these people who are having these realizations and are realizing that their careers they've chosen for the past forty years, all the forty years coming, if they're young, um, are actually not valuable. So I think we re, we need to reappraise the value of work. We need to humanize work and humanize professions. And I think I think. The other thing that might happen is we'll see a lot of startups happening now because I think people are moving away from this corporate model. Um, yeah. Some might boomerang, but I think we'll see a lot more startups. So, um, But I know the Liverpool City region is investing in startups. There's innovation funds and all stuff like that. But I think people will, if they can't be given, if they can't be given purpose by a larger corporation, they'll go and find their own purpose. They'll get their own mission. They'll, they'll value their own work and they'll actually make a difference and get paid for it as well because as you said we can't really move away from the dominant economic model that we already have we can make steps towards it that'd be quite nice but we'll see and i think it's i think it's difficult as well i think these issues are completely compounded by um as you say the the impact of being considered a non-key worker or not valuable is huge and yeah. then that those issues are then compounded for people that aren't in a position which is a privileged position to be able to say, oh, well, actually, then I'll move away from that sector. And I think that yeah. in times like these, there's not actually that many people that are able to do that. And those that are probably being, those that suffer for the most, suffer the most exploitation or are treated the least well are also those that find themselves in difficult positions, you know, like financially being able to say, oh, I, I don't want to do that job anymore and I'm going to start a startup is something that, you know, not that many people have the opportunity to do, especially, you know, after a decade of austerity and on the back of yeah. you know, financial crash. Um, yeah. However, I think you're completely right in terms of, I think for me, um, the idea of building back better, you know, and I have my own opinions on like, marketing slogans and that sort of stuff, obviously, but I think yeah, it needs right. to be a focus that isn't, <laughs> it needs to be a focus that isn't on the economic side of it. It needs yeah, to be yeah. on the people. Um, and yeah. I know that sounds incredibly, idealistic um well i think, I think you know so, some of us have to be idealistic we have to have a um a greater purpose uh, you know the shooting star in the sky that we we are trying to move towards it's interesting what you say and it's a very good point about it's all right saying oh there'll be more startups but it's if you can afford to go and do a startup you know what i mean thanks ollie so is there anything else that you'd like to add before we finish yes there is and it's quite difficult to talk about, although we touched on it before, but it's quite difficult to talk about given that my position as a PhD student and as part of the academic ecosystem. But one thing that I've noticed is a lot of research is coming out that's saying, you know, business models need to change. Healthcare needs to change. And um, we need to link up systems more so people don't fall through the gaps. Public sector needs to change, corporations, small businesses, yada, yada, yada. And all those messages are, are coming from academia. But what we're not doing is actually looking to ourselves and asking how we need to change. So the, the, the type of research, and this is broader than the work that I'm doing, but the research I'm interested in is futures research and and i suppose my disenfranchisement with the current academic model comes from a lack of prescience in that we collect data from the past 
and then we look most of the time when we look back on the past and it's almost like a a reporting of what happened or an explanation of what happened whereas i think there's more of a civic duty or intellectual activist role of yeah. academia yeah. of going we are the ones who have the the benefit and the time to actually do all this reading we can gather all this knowledge we can sit around you know drink drink lovely coffee and eat biscuits and talk about it and that's work for us and there's a but and whilst that's great there's a lot of responsibility in that that i think when we're not actually holding ourselves accountable enough for i think as i say we need to be more prescient and we need to be looking at futures research so we need to be looking into the future and going what it's almost like scenario planning what are the different things that could happen and try and research them before they've even happened the whole methodology and field of futures research is growing so i think i think more and more people are talking about it but but but, but in the uk specifically i don't think there's enough so that's that's probably i'm glad i've got that off my chest but i think that's something that i think we need to address how are we as an academic institution as in the whole of academia in the uk how are we not being additive to this recovery or this hashtag build back better if i'm going to use it how are we not being additive to it and how can we be more prescient i think those points are really useful i think a lot of phd students um and you know i think we'll see this a lot through uh, the people that I speak to on on this project, I think a lot of us are feeling that in terms yeah, of yeah. Um, it. There's a huge paradox or, or actually a gap, maybe actually um, between the work that we do and then the the way that that is disseminated. And I completely agree. I think that I definitely feel, especially certain types of, of research, that there's a responsibility to use that in a certain way it's very you know it's it's a, a difficult ethical and political dilemma in terms of yeah. um sharing that and using that in a way that isn't patronizing that isn't top down which is something that i massively struggle with in my work and something that i'm acutely aware of and constantly yeah responsible. yeah but i don't think that that's a reason to shy away from it and i think that sometimes that, that can be used as a reason but i do think there's a really important space that phd students um can and should occupy that we haven't necessarily been doing or oh yeah i mean yeah we, i mean we could do a whole another one of these on disseminating research yeah i think we are we are totally disconnected to the type of people that we need to be reaching i.e the, the the younger generations as well you know yeah. um and the older and the older generations i think the journal model is outdated I think we yeah. need to be engaging with media, i.e. theatre, film, music, art. And I, I do really, really believe that's the way that we can actually be a more effective institution. And it, Abby, it's probably down to us. We probably need to lead that charge. Don't know whether I can cope with that pressure today. <laughs> I will start on Monday. <laughs> okay, so... Thank you so much um, for talking to me. It's been really, really useful. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we'll talk, talk again soon on this, um, especially kind of looking after these 28,000 jobs have been created. Looking back on that, I think would be really useful. Um, and yeah. it's, you know, these are conversations that need to be have had before the implementation of these 
policies and new initiatives. So thank you so much um, and we will speak to you soon. Thanks Abby.